0: Father, we're here in your house. This is night number five of being together, Lord, and we're going to go after this for a whole other week. Thank you for the Sabbath rest that's coming. May we be entering into it even now as the evening hours have come. And I am praying may the Spirit be here to be our teacher. May we find encouragement, Lord. May we find edification and exhortation and consolation in your word and in your presence so please lord bless us all now bless me may the spirit be the prompter as i am the speaker and i pray may as we all listen may we all make a journey to truth and take courage and joy with us as we go in jesus name amen all right this evening jesus on prophecy where are we going to go well, tomorrow morning I mentioned we're going to be spiritual abuse, prophecy, and the divine right of man. There's nothing that can abuse people more spiritually, relationally, emotionally than religion that's twisted for the benefit of a person or an institution. And tomorrow I'm going to show you the greatest spiritual abuse scandal in the history of the world. I'll be doing it at both services, 8:30. And eleven twenty. Then in the evening, I want to talk about the end of secrets, watching and waiting. We're living in an age in which the devil wants to make sure nobody's paying attention to the to the coming of Christ, and he's even proffered some very destructive and deceptive doctrines to make sure that people are looking in the wrong place. Have you ever gone on the internet and watched? And watch that video where the person is uh, bouncing the ball back and forth to each other. I've done this in my prophecy seminars. And while they're, ba- I tell them, count how many times they're bouncing the ball back and forth. And they're so intent watching them bounce the ball back and forth that they don't see the clown dancing around in the back of the screen until I stop the video and run it again, and then they see it. This is the devil's trick. He understands and has studied the human mind. On Sunday night, Bible prophecy and the last conspiracy. There's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. I'm going to show you how God is going to end every single one of them. And nobody will doubt His credibility, His love, and His truthfulness. And then on Monday night... Here comes the judge. I'm going to show you the longest Bible time prophecy and how it points to the hour of judgment. We talked about Christ's three roles, both as our sacrifice and the one who opened a way up for a relationship with God, a mediator, and also as a vindicating judge. I'm going to show you how Christ coming to be the sacrifice and then move into the role of mediator and then move into the role of vindicator. I'm gonna show you in the Bible exactly that it was, it was, Christ came right on time and it was prophesied down to the very day. And then Tuesday, I'm gonna talk with you about the eternal gospel because in Revelation chapter 14 there's three angels flying and it says that they have the eternal gospel. I want you to think about that. What would the eternal gospel be? I thought that was when Jesus died on the cross. Friends, it's so much more. I look forward to sharing with you what that is. Be sure to be here on each of these nights. But tonight, I want to talk with you about a very, very serious subject. Tonight, I want to talk with you about Satan's prophecy and prophetic role versus Jesus' prophecy and prophetic role. And if you noticed, I just had a cemetery up. You see, Jesus himself said this, Beware of false prophets. Now, if Jesus said it, we ought to listen to it. If Jesus said it, it's because he knew there would be false prophets. And what we don't have to be aware, uh, afraid of is the, the, the... Well, you know, if I was going to want to fool you and be a false prophet, I'd look as much like a true one as I could. And when Jesus is warning us, He's reminding us that inside of the church you will actually find those that will work to move people away from a love for Christ and a simple love for God. Jesus said this, and He also said this in Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit Of prophecy. God's end time people keep the commandments of God. Look here, friends, it's right on the front of this church. They keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus, Revelation 12 17, and the Bible interprets it clearly itself. In God's remnant people, there will be. Parents and teachers and preachers who will keep the prophetic spirit alive. They will not only edify teaching the truth, they will exhort and reprove bringing people back to the truth and they will console with the knowledge that Jesus is our all in all. But false prophets are a part of the end time package and we are going to be seeking to be earnestly and sincerely following the truth. But it deserves being looked at just a little bit because... There are two dangers here. You could accept the counterfeit. False prophet could come along. And I've already told you that the Bible says that there'll be demons masquerading as angels of light and they're going to work lying wonders. You don't think the prophets will work lying wonders too? You bet they will. So there's a temptation that you'll be sucked into the false because we've been taught that seeing is believing. And the other big danger is that you'll reject the true because the message cuts across the grain of your life. Have you ever had a parent enact a prophetic role in your life? Have you ever sat in a church and the preachers preached a message? They say it's stepping on toes. Sometimes I think you feel like you're being run over by a truck. The truth of the matter is, God loves us too much. When we read the last message to the last church in the book of Revelation chapter 3, he says, those I love I rebuke and chasten. How about Peter on the night before, he denied Jesus. Did Jesus just say, oh, it's no big deal. We'll let him deny me. We'll let him be taken by Satan. He doesn't understand that he's about to be so afraid that he'll lie that he ever met me. He declared me to be Messiah in Matthew chapter 16, but he's going to say he's never ever hung out with me and he's going to cuss and swear to prove it. No, Jesus was a true prophet, and he loved his followers too much to let them be easy prey. And when a parent fails to fulfill this role in the life of their children, when a wife cannot command the respect of her husband, when a teacher is not able to properly and morally instruct their charges, when a pastor is too afraid that his pay might be cut. I want to tell you, I work for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I really work for God, but I work with the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I pastor a big church in this denomination, but when I pastored a little church, even though I was... Still working my way up into what we might call a form of tenure, but if I were to go pastor a little church right now, I'd make the same amount of money I make pastoring this church. This church is set up fantastically. And so the little church down the road or over in Edwardsburg or wherever else it is, if I were to move over and start pastoring that church, my paycheck wouldn't change. But there are pastors out there where if they preach the truth, they're afraid. They might get voted out of a job. My local congregation can't vote me out of my job. That has to be done by my conference committee. I want to tell you, this church is set up fantastically. But the genuine pastor does fulfill a prophetic role. He does edify, he does exhort, and he does console. So how are we going to be able to tell the difference? Well, that's a very important question. The Bible will answer it, though. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I'll speak to him. In a dream. So, two basic ways they receive their information could be in a vision or a dream, and it could be that the Spirit impresses their minds. How do we know that? Peter tells us prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved on by the Holy Spirit. So, you might have a divine moment where God speaks to you in a dream or a vision, or you might be so immersed in a relationship with God that the Spirit settles the conviction on your heart as a prophet. God worked both ways. Not all of God's prophets were Bible writers. Make sure you're familiar with this. Elijah was taken to heaven without dying, but he never left us a book in the Bible. And there are women as well who were prophets. Deborah, Huldah, and the daughters of Philip. God dispensed this role across the gender lines. Some of them left us writing. Some of them didn't. Some of them were written about. There are biblical tests to a prophet. What are they? Number one, they need to be prophetically accurate. In other words, if they predict the future, it needs to come true. Now, Jeremiah had an interesting situation. Before I read this text, I want to explain to you his challenge. Jeremiah was up against a whole host of false prophets. They all went to church and the synagogue and the temple. But there was a problem. They had learned that telling people what they wanted to hear was better than telling them what they didn't want to hear. And what they didn't want to hear was that they had wandered so far from God that God had ordained a heathen nation with a leader named Nebuchadnezzar. Have we heard of him before? God had ordained a heathen nation to come and discipline them. That heathen nation was going to come. And what should they do? According to Jeremiah, they should submit themselves to the nation. The false prophet said, no, don't do that. Nebuchadnezzar comes the first time in 606 BC. This is when Daniel is taken off. No bloodshed. He surrounds the city. Eventually, they let him in. Nobody dies, is my best guess. This is not the moment when he destroys the city. And he takes away some of the best-looking young men and maybe young women, and he retrains them. Well, the Israelites have a little problem with rebellion. Nebuchadnezzar comes back about nine years later. Jeremiah is still saying the same thing, submit to him. And every other prophet is saying, no, don't do that. This time, Nebuchadnezzar takes back all the tradesmen, 10,000, and Ezekiel the prophet goes with him. But you know, when Stephen was stoned, he got in trouble for telling the Sanhedrin that they were stiff-necked. Just like your fathers, he said. That put him over the edge, but the truth of the matter is, The Israelites rebelled again for 11 years. And this time when Nebuchadnezzar came and he surrounded the city, it took a little bit longer. And this time he was sick and tired of dealing with these rebel people that he had given a chance to submit to his authority. But all along the way, Jeremiah had been saying, submit, submit, submit. Now imagine if you're the king and you've been in rebellion over the last years and there's been a siege on for 11, 12, 13 months. You're afraid to submit because you're going to get in trouble. But Jeremiah keeps saying, submit, and it'll go well with you. He told them, Nebuchadnezzar will rule. How many times does Nebuchadnezzar have to come back and take the city before the people wake up and they say, we ought to listen, Jeremiah is a true prophet. The sad part of the matter is, is Jeremiah was thrown in a pit. Then he was kept in confinement, basically jail. There was a, there was an Ethiopian eunuch named Ebed-Melech, Ebed-Melech pled on behalf of Jeremiah, went to the king and said, you shouldn't have let those guys throw him down in that, in that worn out well, down in the muck and the mire. I'm telling you this story for a reason, because the worst place to be when everything comes apart is not always jail. Jeremiah was in the jail, word had gotten out to Nebuchadnezzar that Jeremiah had been telling them. To surrender, All the false prophets had said, no, don't surrender. They felt like Jeremiah was a traitor and a treasonous prophet. It just turned out Jeremiah was right. And finally, when Nebuchadnezzar came into the city, yes, being an enemy of the king wasn't such a bad thing at that point in time, except for one thing, Jeremiah was not an enemy of the king. And here's what I want to tell you to bolster your faith tonight. God sent a special message to Jeremiah about Ebed-Melech. And he said, you send a message to Ebed Melek and you tell him, I've seen what you've done. Remember, Ebed Melek's the one that advocated for Jeremiah when they dropped him down in that miry pit. And he said, you tell Ebed Melek, I'm going to spare his life. What did that mean to Ebed Melek when those infuriated Babylonians were racing through the city, killing and molesting and destroying and the blood was running in the streets friends i want to tell you when chaos breaks open on this land and around the world if your life is hidden christ you don't have to worry because you're hidden in the fortress of the impregnable rock and ebed melech was spared because he did justly he loved mercy he walked with god he wasn't afraid to be associated with the prophet friends I don't have time tonight and I'm using up my precious time with a lot to say but I want to tell you something. One of the reasons people are kept outside of the city, you go to the list in the book of Revelation, I'll do it before the series is done, the first reason people are outside of the city of God in the end is fear. Fear is just selfishness running on steroids. It's natural but perfect love casts out fear. And to be afraid in perpetuity is sin. It's not a a sin to be afraid. What did David say when he wrote the Psalms? He said, what time I am afraid, I'll trust in you. David was so afraid, he acted crazy before a Philistine king. It's It's not a sin to be afraid. But it might be a sin to stay afraid on and on and on and on and on after God shows himself. Look at the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. How many things would God have to do to say, I'm in charge of nature. I can speak water out of a rock. I can make the Red Sea a dry path. I can turn bitter water sweet. I'll shade you by day and warm you by night with a cloud in the day and a fire by night. And eventually God said, you have wicked unbelief. I couldn't do any more to show you it's going to be okay. So friends, I'm challenging you. The devil would love to make people who understand the future afraid. And God says, don't be afraid. He goes farther and he says, don't you dare be afraid. I spoke this world into existence and I can speak your protection and your provision all the way through to the end. Can you say amen, friends? As for the prophet who prophesied peace, there were hundreds of them. When the word of the prophet comes to pass... The prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Boy, you want to read an exciting part of the Bible, go to Jeremiah, get about into the middle of the book, and look at the showdown between him and Hananiah, the false prophet. It's an awesome showdown. Jeremiah was shown to be true. Jonah Jonah preached. Nineveh would be destroyed. Was it destroyed, friends? Yes or no? No. Why? Because they repented. Some people say the ark was not big enough to hold the then known world. Friends, if the world would have repented, or even too many to go on the ark, God would not have brought the flood. God loves people. Oh, wait, can't get too far ahead of myself. God's true prophets are accurate because God is not confused and He doesn't have problems communicating biblical faithfulness. This is huge for a prophet. If there arises among you a prophet and a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or a wonder, pause, friends. The prophet can do a sign or a wonder. Don't miss it. And the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you saying, here's the problem. He did the sign or the wonder, but now he's saying, let's go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold him fast. The Bible is our guide. It doesn't matter if you can bring fire down from heaven. Thus saith the Lord, it is written, Jesus said, If the so-called prophet is not leading a person to the Word of God, you ought not to be letting him lead you. Prophets have to exalt Jesus. Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Because, you notice my underline, there's a few false spirits that have gone out into the world. Is that what it says? No, many. Do you think they're less today than they used to be with so many outlets to get your attention? We live in an attention economy The reason after you go look at a gentleman, a new Toyota truck online, and the next time you go to your email, there's Toyota truck ads up over there, is because they're watching you. They're tracking everywhere you go. There are more avenues to seduce and entice than there's ever been before. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that's one of the signs. Is it enough on its own? No, but it's one of the signs. Their commandment keeping. This is important. To the law and to the testimony. That's a reference to the Scriptures. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. It doesn't matter what they can do. They must be people of the book. Physical test interesting prophets when they experience visions their eyes are open and they remain open throughout the vision check out Numbers 24 it's a reference to Balaam Balaam makes this and of course Balaam was tempting to cast spells in visions prophets have no physical strength this is what Daniel lost they lay there they stand there prophets in vision do not breathe now that's an interesting phenomenon God himself keeps them alive while he's engaging them And sixthly, spiritual uh, prophets have fruit in their life. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Of course, that's true for us too, friends. And at some measure, all of us are to fulfill a prophetic role. Not that we're all telling the future. But there is a role of living by our lives. So the gift of prophecy never takes the place of the Bible. It only exalts it. It points people back to what they already know from the inspired messengers. The dragon was enraged with the woman, he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, and here we are again, who keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus which is the spirit of prophecy. In this day and age many of the Protestant churches of America have abandoned a work of edification and exhortation and consolation. Instead they've turned their churches into religious businesses and the And the members into customers and patrons. And of course, in a society like ours, customer is king. Now, here we are. Satan on prophecy versus Jesus on prophecy. Here's the first prophecy in the Bible. Actually, it's the second. But here's the first false one. Jesus said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And when Jesus wasn't around the first false prophet, the ultimate false prophet, comes along in a mysterious way. She had never seen a serpent talk before. She didn't know anyone lied in the universe. And he said, you will not surely die. She was taken back, flattered, drawn in. And she ate of the fruit. And this is the result. Just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. I received it by natural inheritance. I was corrupted from the beginning. But the result of that question in the garden has left us wondering, when you die, do you go to heaven? Do you go to hell? Or is there another option? Tonight, friends, I want to tell you this one topic brings together more lies more deception more misunderstanding than any other bible doctrine that exists or has ever existed from the history of man to this moment and by the time i'm done you're going to see how evil and centering this doctrine is to confuse and destroy and its power for the future Are the dead asleep is the question we need to ask. Did they go straight to heaven? Did they go straight to hell? Or they are a third option. Are they waiting for the resurrection when Jesus comes? Are they in heaven? Are they in hell? That's a big question. Is the soul immortal? Or is there a resurrection? The Bible is clear. Jesus speaks to it. He says, I am he who lives. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Jesus is in control of this topic. He was a true prophet in the garden. People are dying all around us. Satan was, is, and will forever be, until he's destroyed, a liar. What does the Bible teach about the idea of the immortal soul? Well, right in the very beginning, this is what it says. God formed man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became what? A living soul. That's biblical language for a person dust plus the spirit equals a living soul he took the ground he put it into perfect form but it was still missing something he breathed his own life into it and people came to life so elements and breath equal a living being a living soul these words are used in similar ways they mean the same thing some people want to suggest that we have an immortal soul and at birth it was stuffed into us and at death it flies out and it's either got to go up or it's got to go down friends it's a lie. it's pagan it's not in the Bible and when we're done I hope you can see it the immortal soul does not exist in humanity it does exist and I'm going to show you where But the soul that sins, according to the Bible, will die. Behold, all souls are mine. Talking about all people, I just showed you that. The soul of the Father, or the person as the Father, the soul of the Son is mine. And the soul who sins shall die. Now, we're back to the Garden of Eden, just that quick. But if we want to play with words and suggest somehow that Pastor Ron's got it wrong, that the word soul doesn't represent person, let's just get it this simple. The Bible teaches, whether you will you believe that the soul is a phrase for the living person, for a being, for a complete person to receive body and breath from God or not, the Scriptures are clear. Whether you accept that definition or you go with the old one that comes from Greek mythology, the soul can And will die. Forever desires to save his life, notice the white word, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Okay, so we just used the word life. Who's talking here? Jesus. Now we're going to go to the second verse. That's verse 25. Now let's go to verse 26. Let's see if Jesus believes that the word soul means life. Because now he's going to change gears. Here we go. Life, life. Rest of the verse. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? The scriptures are like this. They will often repeat and transition. What Jesus is saying, it won't do you any good to get all of this world, but miss out on eternal life. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Only God is immortal. Mortal means that you can die. Immortal means that you can't. Most of us came here knowing that. And the Bible never uses the term immortal soul or immortality of the source. As a matter of fact, the only person pronounced as immortal in the Bible is Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. Now to the King eternal immortal. There it is. Invisible to God who alone is wise be honor and glory forever and ever. God gave us life in the garden as a probationary moment. He warned that that probation could be lost. The good news is God showed up in the garden to give it back to us. That's what we talked about last night. But God has it. God can give it. But if God doesn't give it, you don't have it. And this is what the devil doesn't want you to know. He, 1 Timothy, this time, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light I want to tell you the devil has pushed this lie so hard that even people who don't go to church are afraid that they have an immortal soul and are going to live in hell forever and of course everybody thinks they're going to have an immortal soul and they want to live in heaven but pagan philosophy is the originator of this concept not Jesus the Bible teaches that death is like a sleep and the believer who dies is as secure look at the picture friends look at the picture he is as secure as if he were sleeping in the arms of Jesus. Have you ever wondered how some of those people could stare their executioner? There's a book. It's called Acts of the Apostles. Not the Bible book, but it's a commentary on it written by a lady named Ellen White. She tells how in AD 67, the apostle Paul finally was going to die. She describes it as a beautiful day. And as he lays his head down on the chopping block, he was a Roman citizen. They couldn't crucify him. She talks about how his thoughts were springing forward to the fact that the next thing he was going to see was his dear Savior. Not because he was going straight to heaven, but that he would hear the voice of Jesus. In the book of Philippians, Paul says, I want to know you more. I want to know you in your death and resurrection. Paul could face death with cheer and hope and so have many millions of others who laid down their lives in the first 300 years of the Christian church because they knew they were safe in the arms of Jesus. But spiritualism and new age, which is what we're dealing with now, also teach that the soul is immortal. And if you haven't watched TV lately, listen, you need to solve a crime scene, just get in touch with the dead. You want a little comfort? Just go see a medium or a seance. We have shows that have been called medium. We have crime scenes, which by the way happen to be one of the most intriguing and interesting uh, cinematic productions that are out there. Friends, don't watch this stuff. It is sensitizing you or desensitizing you, however you want to say it. It's making you ready to believe it when you see it. And it's taking away from the confidence you have that it's all nothing but made up. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, this is Paul, but we shall all be changed. Why is he saying sleep? Because he knows for the Christian he must die, but he knows for the Christian it's a sleep and he will live again in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed. When God created Adam, he did not make him with an immortal soul, he gave him life. And God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. It took both. You don't have one if you don't have both. It's a little bit like, well, I'll wait, I'll save that. Death is creation in reverse. Now, you need to know that the word cemetery is a Greek word that means dormitory. You check me out. The word cemetery is a Greek word that means dormitory. When you go to the cemetery, it's like creation in reverse. The dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Oh, Pastor Ron, don't you get it? Right there it says, it. oh, hang on. That spirit is not an immortal soul. That's the breath. I'm going to show that to you. The Old Testament word for spirit is ruach, it means breath. You came here tonight with cars that all had air in their tires. If they didn't have air in their tires, you didn't come. We call those pneumatic tires. That's the New Testament word, pneuma, spirit, breath. We get God's breath into our bodies and we live. Without God's breath in our bodies, we die. Why do we say they breathe their last? Because that's the end. That's when you die. The devil said, that's not how it is. God said, oh yes, it is. And we're living with it. We had someone in this faith communion today that lost their loved one. Please be praying for them. The spirit and the soul are different. How are they different? The spirit is the breath. The soul is the whole person. Don't forget that. God puts the breath in us, but the soul requires a body and the breath to be a soul. The spirit of breath or the spirit of life, that goes back to God. The Bible teaches that the breath and the spirit are the same thing. And while my breath is in me, Job would say, and the spirit of God is in my nostrils, he's repeating himself. He'll praise the Lord. Now, light bulb. There's an element there. It's not an LED. It's an old-fashioned one. But there's no light. It's a light bulb. But you have to have power. When you have power, there's light. You might have a body, but if you don't have the breath, you're not a soul. And there is no such thing as a soul without a body. I could have electricity. I could tell you, there's electricity out there. It doesn't make light. Electricity has to have, it has to have a, a filament and a vacuum and some glass. You put the two together, you have life. When you put the body and the breath together, you have life. And without it, there is none. Since the power to create life is with God, His Spirit which gave life returns to Him. This is what Jesus said. Now, is there any consciousness in death? Let's get a little bit clearer here. Psalm 146. His breath goeth forth... Talking about people. He returned it to the earth, talking about death, and in that very day his thoughts perish. The Bible writer who wrote this psalm believed that Jesus was the true prophet in Genesis 3, not Satan. The living know that they will die, Solomon, the wisest man in the world, but the dead know how much? I've heard preachers say on the radio Solomon was depressed when he wrote this scripture. So I guess they're a little bit like that founder of our country who who went through and cut all the parts out of the Bible that they didn't think were, were actually inspired. But what I read when Paul's writing to Timothy is that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. This verse didn't sneak in without God looking. God knew when He prophesied in the garden, you'll die if you rebel. You'll die if you disobey. The dead know nothing. Also, their love, their hatred, and their envy have perished. The whole emotional spectrum has gone. Why? Because the person's gone. Death is asleep until Christ comes. Actually, sixty-six times in seventeen books, it's referred to as asleep. Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. This is David writing. He doesn't want to die. He wants to live. Jesus, when He was with His 12 disciples, got word that Lazarus was sick. What did Jesus say about Lazarus' sickness? He said, our friend Lazarus sleeps. He waited. He waited long enough to let Lazarus die. Why? Because Mary and Martha... All of his disciples in the entire Christian church needed to witness that Jesus held the powers of Haiti and death and that he was also the author of life. He lingered and let Lazarus go through a difficult time so that Lazarus could be the only person, well, one of the few of his generation that was actually brought back from death to life. Jesus cared for Lazarus. He was sorry for what had happened, but he stayed away on purpose. Why? To teach a powerful lesson that he was the life and the resurrection. His disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. They didn't get it. And Jesus made it more clear. Now listen, primary sources matter. This is a a community with an institution of higher learning. When you go to writing your research papers and doing your projects and your dissertations, you want primary sources. This is the same person that was in the Garden of Eden. He's fully God. John tells us he was in the beginning. He was the Word. Nothing was made without him. This is the one who told Eve, in the day you eat of it you'll die. This is the one that showed up and delivered Eve from immediate death. This is the one who has given us all a new lease on life. He is the primary source. He is the logos. He is the word. He's the living word. And he cannot be excelled in authority. And they said, Lord, if he sleeps, he gets well. And what does Jesus say? Jesus spoke about his death. But they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. He told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Jesus was not only perfectly okay with the idea, the metaphor of death for sleep, Jesus is the author of it. And instead of us going to sleep and never waking up, which the Bible calls the second death, instead of never existing again, which would have been the result, the natural result of rebellion, Jesus says, I have the power to bring you back to life if you trust me. Your brother will rise again. Mary and Martha found him. And you know, Martha, a little bit like Peter, seemed to have more to say than should be said. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And what did she say? Well, he's living right now. He's up in heaven. No, she didn't say that. She said, I know. He'll rise again when? The resurrection. In the last day. What she didn't know was that that day for Lazarus was today. It's an amazing story. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. Jesus could have commanded the stone to be moved by itself, but he didn't. And I just love this next picture. I want you to get an idea. I want you to look into the faces of the two women. Here we are. Look at them. Oh, my They got more than they bargained for. Jesus did exceedingly abundantly above what they could ask or think. And he's not done, friends. He's going to do more. Job will say if his sons are honored, he does not know it. Once he's dead, they don't know that his children are being honored. If they're brought low, he does not see it. It's a good thing, friends, because some of the things to be seen on planet Earth would just break an old person's heart. How could it be heaven if down below you were watching the devil pick off your children and your grandchildren with addiction depression no indeed death is a blessed rest you're beyond the reach of the persecutor you're beyond the reach of disease and discouragement the dead do not praise the Lord nor any who go down into silence you have to be alive to praise Jesus could somebody say amen and we ought to do more of it so what about the thief on the cross Well, isn't this what the Bible says? Then the Lord said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It was a great encouragement to Jesus. (laughs) His own disciples ran away. One had sold him into this terrible experience. One had denied he even knew him. And at first, both of these thieves were saying bad things about him, but one of them wakes up. And he, he recognizes that even after he's maligned, the son of God, that there's enough compassion in his heart to appeal to him. This is a glorious story. And he says, Lord, remember me. And Jesus said unto him, assuredly, I say unto you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, I did not read that like the comma is placed, did I? Are you paying attention? I want you to know something. The commas were not inspired when they were stuck in the Bible. They were stuck in about 600 years ago. And I want you to know that punctuation matters. So all you English teachers take courage. And all you students, pay attention. That comma right there was some priest or monk's best idea of where it ought to be placed, but he was already corrupted with the idea that you have an immortal soul, so he placed it where it made sense. The problem is it's in the wrong place. And if you just moved it over a little bit and got it where it's supposed to be, it would fit with all the rest of Scripture, and we wouldn't have a problem, would we? Assuredly, I say unto you today, I'm giving you assurance right now. You're condemned by Rome. You're probably abandoned by your family. But you're not abandoned by me. I'm telling you right now, you will be with me in paradise. Boy, I'd love to hear those words, wouldn't you? Friends, they've already been said to you. How about this? Pardon impossible to be sent to the gulags. Move the, period, move the comma. Pardon. Impossible to be sent to the gulag. As a matter of fact, I had one of our church school teachers recommend this book to me. I actually bought it. Look at where the comma is. And look down here with the little guy with bow and arrows. What does this mean? Does it mean that he eats and then he shoots and leaves? Got the little arrow in the target there. Or is it that he eats, shoots, and leaves? (laughs) It's quite an interesting little book. They do matter. Jesus went to the cross on Friday. He was in the tomb on Sabbath. He was resurrected on Sunday. And somebody showed up. Imagine, all of the men didn't get it. They didn't even think Jesus would die. They were so discouraged. But they, the ladies at least knew they ought to be there. Mary at least understood Jesus was going to die. That's why she brought that perfume. But you know, she shows up at the tomb and the body's gone. And she sees the gardener. And she says, What would you do with him? And what's Jesus say? Woman, why are you weeping? Well, She wants to know where the body's been put. Tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. And then he speaks some words, uses her name. (laughs) What a sweet moment. Mary. She turned and she said to him, Rabboni, teacher. And what does Jesus say? Don't hang on to me. I've not yet gone to present myself to the Father. Listen, friends. Jesus couldn't have met the thief on Friday night in heaven because Jesus wasn't there. He died like you and I die. I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live in the life I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God. Listen, friends, He entered into my experience. He entered into yours. He went beyond it because Christ died the second death when He was hanging on the cross and He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He could not see beyond the portals of the tomb. He went to the cross and He hung there. Christ was feeling so alone and He thought... He was paying the ultimate price, the price of no resurrection, because our sins had blinded him. And yet, by faith, hanging on to the word of God, he went all the way through with it and cried out, It is finished. Listen, friends, we have a living hope, but Jesus didn't go to heaven on Friday, and He didn't go on Saturday. He didn't go until Sunday. He went to be assured that His sacrifice had been accepted. The thief didn't go to heaven either, because the living know they'll die, but the dead know nothing, and we, like Paul, have to hope for the resurrection. I'm gonna, but you go tell them, I'm alive. I'm gonna go to my Father and to your God. Jesus himself didn't go on Friday. So what did Jesus mean? Well, what I've just explained. So why has the false prophet worked so hard to teach this false doctrine? I'm going to tell you why. Here we go. Number one, if you have immortal life already, it doesn't have to be given to you and no price has to be paid. Thus, you negate the most elemental storyline of salvation, the cross. If you already have an immortal soul, then what Jesus said to Nicodemus outside of Jerusalem is not true. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him might not go to eternal burning hell fire. Is that what it says? No, it says that He might not perish. That means die. Die but that He might have eternal life. You don't have eternal life till it's given to you, just like Adam and Eve didn't have life until it was given to them. If you accept the false prophet's lie, you pull the rug out from underneath the most amazing sacrifice and greatest journey of love that has ever been and ever will be enacted in the history of the universe. You don't need a cross. Oh yes, the false prophet's got an agenda. I don't want to put too many up at once. Come on back. The cross is meaningless. The resurrection is a joke. If I'm a good man, when I die, I go off to heaven. Don't give me that confusing mumbo-jumbo that i got to come back down at the resurrection and get a body. Are you kidding? Heaven's real. When Jesus was resurrected, what did He say? He said, touch me. He came back to life like we're going to come back to life with breath and a body. The resurrection is a joke if you go straight to heaven. And all the theologizing, if there's such a word, all the amazing attempts to come up with a credible statement about why you'd need a resurrection, they're confusing and convoluted and they're wrong. You come back to life at the voice of Jesus, just like you came to life at the will of God. The resurrection's a joke. The third thing, which ought to get every parent into the most sober mode, just like that thunder. (laughs) I've never had a moment like that when I'm preaching. (laughs) But listen to me. If you think that dead people come back to life, you are a sitting duck for deception. Because the devil is gonna take advantage of your grief and your loneliness and your ignorance. And he's going to suck you right into a destructive vortex and take away your eternal life because you'll think seeing is believing. Oh, yes, the devil's a false prophet and he hates this doctrine because he knows if you believe it, you are set up to be sucked in, chewed up, and spit out, and miss out on a glorious, glorious eternal experience. The third thing you need to know about this doctrine is that. If people have immortal souls the second coming is a farce you don't need to be anticipating Jesus to come if the next thing is you just are your soul just flies off into heaven and you're with him right there it makes absolutely no sense to have a second coming all somebody could come up with is well there are people alive on the earth and Jesus needs to come get them that's true but the Bible's exceptionally clear. Nobody's going to heaven ahead of anybody else, with a few exceptions like Elijah and Enoch and Moses. And the first fruits that Jesus took. You know, there were people that were resurrected when Jesus died. And he took them to heaven as first fruits. There are a few human beings in heaven. But Peter's not there, and neither's Paul. They're waiting. To hear the sound of Jesus like a trumpet and this earth convulse and the graves pop open and the angels come down and bring us all together. The second coming's a joke if you have an immortal soul. I'm going to talk about this tomorrow morning. The devil has a tremendous interest in making sure you have an immortal soul because if you have an immortal soul, God's got to do something with you after he takes the saints home and it turns God into the eternal torturer. Oh, you think about it he's worse than Satan if you have an immortal soul the sixth thing that you need to know about why Satan is pushing this because if there's such thing as an immortal soul if life is derived other than God then Satan never dies but I'm saving my best one for last if there could be one better than the first the main reason Satan is pushing this thing is because if you believe Him, you make God into a liar. And that's what He's wanted all along. Seven reasons. This one doctrine collects about it all the sewage of bad theological thinking throughout the ages. And the strange thing is, people drink it up. And it's all a lie. There is a sting in death. But when Jesus resurrects us, it's because of that first prophecy. He said, In the day you eat of it, you'll die. Satan came along and said, You won't die. But after Jesus came back down, he said, Listen, I'm going to step on the snake's head, but he's going to bite my heel in the process, he's going to pump his venom into my veins. And I'm going to do it for you. The stinger's going to be pulled out. The head of the snake's going to be shook off. And Jesus does have the power to enact punishment on Lucifer. He's the only originator and giver of life. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Can you say amen? Don't be afraid. Satan was wrong. Jesus was right. Some of us are going to die. But all of us, once we receive Jesus, it's no longer what it was before. We sleep. We rest. We wait. And we wake at the voice of our best friend. It's glorious good news. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ. Listen. They're waiting. Isaiah's clear. He tells us that the earth is going to burst open wide. The tombs are going to break open. But listen, Jesus says we're all going together. The Exodus out of Egypt was together. You know what Pharaoh said? Moses, you and the adults can go, but leave your children. And Moses said, "We're not going without our kids." And when they all went out of Egypt and they crossed that Red Sea, they all went out together. It's a type. It's a symbol. It shows how it's going to work. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain. Listen, if there was any confusion, friends, it's the dead that are coming up first. If anybody's in the front of the line, it's the ones who pass through the portals of the tomb. It's not the ones that are alive. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up. What's the word there? Together. Together. With them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It's a great homecoming. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're all going to be there together at the same time. Rejoicing in the same victory. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Friends. (laughs) You lost a loved one? I mean I can't think of anything hardly more tragic than losing a child. Especially a baby. A spouse of course. Oh, what will it be? Disease robs people of siblings and friends and parents. Artist rendition. Be sure and stop in our foyer and look at the Nathan Green painting. Somebody's not telling the truth. Unfortunately, there's a lot of churches who either don't know or don't care. I told you last night, Jesus had three phases of ministry, didn't I? He died for us. He opened up a way for a relationship and he's going to vindicate us. What you need to know is before Jesus takes any of us to heaven, He's going to let the angels be assured that we're safe to bring back in. They went through rebellion once already. We will not go to heaven until after the judgment. And even most theologians believe that the judgment is at the end, so I'm not sure how they get us up there before the final vindication. And by the way, friends, nobody's going to pay the price of the second death until all the questions are answered. If somebody I love is not in heaven, there'll be no execution. They're not sent to hell prematurely. Nobody's going to be suffering the separation from God, which will involve a cleansing fire, but will not involve eternal torment. Nobody until every human being is assured that God has always, only ever told the truth and did everything he could do to redeem every human being. There are more reasons about why this doctrine of immortal soul is wrong than I've enunciated even in this brief 45 minutes. But I'm here to tell you today, friends, we ought to be digging into our words and studying it and knowing it for ourselves, because it is the cornerstone lie of the Bible and it will remain the cornerstone methodology of deception to the end. And we ought to be able to explain to other people why it's so wrong. Sin costs God his life. We're not getting out of this thing without dealing with, with the lie and the truth, but by God's grace, Jesus dealt with the fact that none of us need lose out on eternal life. Die we might hear, but live we have the assurance in Christ. So tonight, friends, just look at the picture. I I pluck this out of Philippians of Thessalonians 4.16. Look at the picture. What will it be? What's the point of heaven It's not a get out of jail, get out of hell free card. It's to be forever with the one who suffered and died to save us. Is to be eternally secure without evil, without the devil, without fear, without tears, without disease, without sorrow. We shall be forever with the Lord. Can you say amen? Tomorrow morning, I'm going to pick up on the topic of hellfire. And I'm just going to give a little bit of a way right now. There is no doctrine that is more spiritually abusive than the idea that you could live for three score and ten on this earth and suffer on a divine rotisserie for the ceaseless ages. You have somebody that wanders? Invite them. Bring them. I have glorious good news for you. Spiritual abuse, prophecy, and the divine right of man. What is that divine right? I'll tell you tomorrow morning. There, is no refre- there are no refreshments tonight. I hope you go away seriously thinking about what I've shared. Study it for yourself, friends. Be assured of the fact that this one lie is the hinge on which eternal destinies are hanging. Don't go out of here tonight, though, and tell anybody you know who has found comfort in the idea that their grandma is in heaven, please don't go out of here tonight and dump a load on them. It would be good, in some sense, to think they were there. It just would be sad when you think through all of the ramifications. It's not true. But this is night number five with me and I've laid a groundwork for this. Please don't go out of here and rush to tell somebody their loved one who was a good person is not where they think they are. Have divine discretion and wisdom. Would you do that for me? Let's not run them off from future sessions. If you want to encourage them to watch the whole series, go to the YouTube channel. Go to Facebook and do it. Pick up the CDs. For some people, this is a big hurdle to get over. May you have the wisdom of heaven, the discretion of love, and the restraint necessary. Let's stand together as we pray. Father, what a mess we made. You could have abandoned us except your love and because your love you couldn't abandon us and wouldn't abandon us take away our fears Lord especially take away our fear of man and especially take away our fear of future oh we've had it so good in America Lord so far beyond the reach of persecution so quick to announce our rights so economically prosperous and benefited So many opportunities. Forgive us when we love this world and we've been afraid of losing what we've got. Help us instead, Lord, to choose to start giving it away so the rest of the world can know who you really are. Bless us now. Thank you for interposing your own precious blood to save us. Thank you that by faith, just by trusting you, by knowing that your word is good and you are good, that you've given us back what we gave away. And may we go out of this room tonight in peace and rejoicing. Please bless those, Lord, that are listening online. May they search the Scriptures. May they be willing to believe what they teach, no matter where it takes them. Guide us now to that end, I pray, and bless us as we gather in the morning, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.